Tacos are tacos, right? Built on the backs of tortillas, corn or flour, hard or soft, stuffed with carne asada or pollo or lengua. Tacos al pastor garnished with salsa verde or roja or habanero, served with a lime wedge or a radish round, a slice of aguacate. Tacos are ubiquitous, a chameleonic cuisine. I remember having one taco that was a soft-shell crab taco. Delicious. I mean, don't get me wrong, but not something you would have found the Aztecs eating necessarily. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South told through the foods we eat. We are a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, and I'm John T. Edge, your host. Today, Gravy takes a look at the Mexican diaspora in Kentucky, the bluegrass state where tacos and the men and women who craft them prove adaptable and resilient. Here's reporter and producer Sarah Reynolds. Chapter 1. La Tortilla. In the northwestern part of Lexington, Kentucky, just inside the city's loop road, there's a little bit of Mexico. In all directions, there are signs in Spanish for a bakery, a restaurant, a grocery store, a daycare, a church, stores selling jewelry, clothing, and sporting goods. And just up the road, past the nighttime taco trucks, you'd see more of the same in another strip mall. And that's right next to the bilingual public library. But at the crux of any diaspora is food, the familiar flavor of one home mixing with a new one. Tacos, in this case. But in order to talk tacos, we first have to talk about tortillas. Luckily, in this place, we can do both. Alberto Ramirez gets to the shop every morning around 9. Taqueria y Tortilleria Ramirez. He and his wife, Laura Patricia, are the owners. They open at 10 a.m., seven days a week, and there's a lot to do before customers arrive. I'm setting up the machine, he says, the tortilla-making machine. Every day, they take the joints apart, clean it, and put them together again in the morning. Alberto knows the machine inside and out. It's a massive piece of equipment, basically a 15-foot-long conveyor belt with a big heating element hidden underneath. It's loud and clunky and sounds like it's about to either take off or completely fall apart. They brought it from Mexico nearly 20 years ago when they first started the business. But despite its age, it will file out the most perfect-looking tortillas. Once it's up and running, Alberto lights the gas pilot under the belt, and the flames ignite. The belt begins to heat, and this is how the tortillas will cook. Alberto is a tall man with a sense of humor and a gentleness about him, despite the pace of his morning chores. He talks about the ranch they live on, in Versailles, just west of Lexington, and speaks of his chickens and pigs like companions. Alberto pulls out a bucket of big yellow kernels of Kentucky corn, grown just down the road in Hardin County. He buys a thousand pounds of corn every couple of weeks from Weisenberger Mills, a sixth-generation family mill about a half hour from the taqueria. Alberto and Laura cook the corn in a mixture of alkaline lime and let it ferment before they rinse and mill it to make the tortillas. This ancient process is called nixtamalization. It breaks down the corn, making it easier to grind, which also makes the dough more pliable. 
This process also adds nutrient value to the corn, calcium, potassium, zinc, and others. We'll grind the corn, he says, as he dumps it into the mill, la molina, and switches it on. It shakes the corn down the funnel and grinds it into a soft, wet dough. Alberto adds some water and a little bit of commercial corn flour until the texture is just right, and that final dough is called masa. He knows the process so well he doesn't measure the ingredients. And the smell of fresh ground corn is rich and nutty and fills the empty shop. That smell, that homemade cooked corn when you mill it, you get that delicious smell, he says. The flavor of your homeland gets you thinking about home. Alberto and Laura are from Jalisco, about halfway down the western coast of Mexico. It's known for its horses and rodeos, so it wasn't so far-fetched that they landed in Lexington, Kentucky, home of the Derby. So did many others from that region, from Jalisco and Aguascalientes in particular. The couple moved here in 1985, not long after they'd married, with one tiny baby in tow, their son Ricky. And they've had three more boys since. When the tortilla machine seems hot enough, Alberto dumps the soft batch of homemade masa into a big pot attached to the center of the conveyor belt. The masa is slowly pulled down towards a rolling piece of metal that cuts and flattens the dough into tortillas. They come out one by one onto the hot conveyor belt and pass through the grill four times before they've cooked through. You know they're done when they have some color. See those little burned spots? He points to the tortillas coming off the belt. A little air builds up inside the tortilla, lifting it up. Like a pillow. Alberto calls for Laura, and she comes running over to help catch the first tortillas before they fall into a pile on the table. The machine keeps chugging. She picks them up in sevens, seven in each hand, twice. She stacks and bags them in clear plastic bags, 28 tortillas per bag. You have to be ready, you have to, because you have to count it. Like, you can talk, but sometimes I'm like, I'm talking and then I've had to stop to remember how many tortillas I have in my hand. But you've been doing this for a long time. You can see when you grab the, the tortillas to put in a bag, you can see if you're missing tortillas or if it has more. That bag will run you $1.90. And on a normal weekday, about 130 of these bags go out the door. That's not counting all the tortillas they use to make tacos or the ones they serve with birria or caldo, traditional Mexican stews made weekly by Laura. It's not just tacos. You can't eat anything without a tortilla. Todo el tiempo comemos tortillas, todo el tiempo. We are always eating tortillas, she says. Always. It's the foundation of our food. She moves back and forth between English and Spanish easily. With the tortillas, you can do so many things. You can roll it up. You can just eat it like the tacos or, you know, you can do enchiladas. You can do anything. It's like, if you don't have it, it's like, oh gosh. The Ramirez's opened their shop as a tortilleria only back in 2000. It fits all definitions of a hole in the wall. One room filled with a dozen brown tables and booth benches. Tacos and fixings are made in the kitchen off to the side, and tortillas are made in the back, all part of the main room. Homemade signs advertise daily specials. Flan, chicharrones, burritos, big and small. Laura bustles around the restaurant during the lunch hour, her hair pulled back in a tight bun, 
lipstick, and a hearty laugh. She brings you a menu if you want to sit down, or you can order takeout from the counter. TVs hang on either side of the room playing telenovelas. Thank you. You have a good one. By late morning on a weekday, the tortillas are ready and the lunch rush begins. The rice in here, we got beans, we got the tongue, what is uh, uh, beef, and then we got steak, we got the cabeza, there's a head meat, then there's the chick meat, carnitas, uh, pastor, it's a marinated pork, and the chicken. So here's what a taco looks like made by the Ramirez family. Double tortillas, the size of your hand, one on top of the other then a generous pile of meat, beans if you'd prefer, chopped cilantro and onion on top of that, and a wedge of lime, which looks like a garnish, but it's meant to be used. Squeeze it. You have to put lime on it, and then you put one of the salsas. I prefer the green one. I'm not, a lot of people use the habanero or the red one. That's pretty spicy. The red one is pretty spicy. A trio of Laura's homemade salsas sit on every table in tall plastic bottles, and they're nearly empty by the end of the day. Tacos are nestled side by side in a wax paper-lined basket. Taqueria y Tortilleria Ramirez is a busy place for lunch and dinner, filled with all kinds of people, young and old, just as many Mexicans walk through the door as non-Mexicans. Laura likes it to feel comfortable and simple here, not fancy. It's a home, she says. People tell me, oh, it reminds me of being home, of being in my country. And if we make it fancy in here, she tells me, it won't feel like home. Laura says she wanted to do it all the way it's done in Mexico. But even though it feels Mexican, there's Kentucky in it too. Their family's been here for more than 30 years now. More life here than there. Alberto says they used to think of home all the time with their routine here making tortillas and tacos. <laughs> but now it's Kentucky style. When they first came, Lexington was a different place. Alberto says no one wanted to rent business space to Mexicans in the 1980s. The only other Mexican business in the neighborhood was the Supermercado Aguas Calientes across the street. It was very different, Laura says. You wouldn't see people walking around like you do now. There were no Hispanos here. And then, about 15 years after Alberto and Laura came to Kentucky, there was a wave of Latinos who moved here. Between 2000 and 2012, Kentucky was one of the top four states with the fastest-growing Latino populations. That's according to the Pew Research Center. They came to work in the Kentucky horse farms, some in landscaping, house cleaning, among other jobs. In 2014, only 3% of the state's population was of Hispanic origin. But the percentage of people of Hispanic or Latino origin in Lexington is 7%, most of them Mexican. That number's from the 2010 census, and it's nearly double the number from the census before that. Now they call it Mexington because there are so many Hispanos, she tells me. Even though they try and go back once a year to visit, Kentucky is home for them. So this Mexican business they've built is also very much of Kentucky. Coming up, what does it mean to be taco literate? But first... As things heat up this summer, we're dreaming of hidden swimming holes and hiking trips. Did you know that Lodge Manufacturing of South Pittsburgh, Tennessee makes camp ovens and grill tops perfect for outdoor meals? From scout trips to mountain hikes, let Lodge be part of your next adventure. 
We thank them for helping to keep our summer traditions and this podcast, well, cooking. Now back to our story, to a rhetoric professor who saw a teaching opportunity in Lexington, a Mexican diasporic community where tacos are a kind of cultural currency. Chapter 2, Inside the Taco. Before we get to taco literacy, here's a little taco history. Let's put it this way. People in Mexico have been putting stuff, food, into a tortilla, wrapping it, then eating it since time immemorial. Gustavo Arellano is the author of Taco USA and editor at OC Weekly in Orange County, California. That is the basis of Mexican food. So when did a taco become a taco? The word has had many meanings in the Spanish language, and it hasn't always meant the taco we eat. A taco is a stick of dynamite, getting drunk, a traffic jam, a wedge to keep a door open, a mess. The word itself is as adaptable as the food. In fact, my dad still calls it a billiard stick. He still calls it a taco. But that meal, the actual concept of a taco, wasn't around at all until the 1860s in Mexico. And it didn't make it to the U.S. until a few decades after that. Early Mexican menus in the U.S. didn't even mention tacos. And then in Southern California in the 1930s is where taco culture really grew. The first known recipe for a taco in the United States was a hard shell taco. The first famous taco type, uh, you know, were taquitos, so like little rolled up tacos, uh, then uh, fried. Those were the first ones that started spreading across Southern California, which I would consider the American birthplace of the taco. Because, yeah, the the tacos were already in Texas. They, They were in the borderlands once they started migrating up north. But in terms of a taco culture, it was really in, uh, in Southern California where it, where it blew up. And the taco culture spread from California and the Southwest all throughout the U.S., and yes, even to Kentucky, and into the halls of the university. Last spring at the University of Kentucky, students were studying it. The class was Taco Literacy, Public Advocacy and Mexican Food in the U.S. South. And though the class syllabus had the typical reading and writing assignments, Dr. Steve Alvarez wanted his students to dig deeper. So to really understand uh, what we might understand as immigrant food in the United States, we really have to understand where that food comes from in other nations, and also how in other nations there is a complicated history. There's a complicated history of how the foods arrive in the United States, but it must never be disassociated from the people and the movement of the people across the world. And by keeping in mind this history, we can't as easily stereotype the food, nor objectify the people who bring it to our tables. Alvarez encouraged his students to think about Mexican foodways as southern foodways, by eating tacos, interviewing the people who cook them, hearing the stories of their families, tracing the origin of their favorite recipes and ingredients. And this, he says, is taco literacy, a cultural literacy. Oftentimes, literacy is posited as a skill that people have or they don't have. But I think of literacy as more as a practice, as a social uh, as I said, social engagement that happens, not necessarily through reading and writing, but also through speaking, and a kind of ways of sharing knowledge. The way I think of literacy is as a social practice, things that people do, and you know, things that people make at the same time. And I think at the same time, if we consider things like food as a kind of practice, and a kind of meaning making, and a kind of sharing, If we think about when we learned how to read when we're very young, we can ask ourselves, who was with us? 
who was the person or the people who shared their literacy with us. We never did it on our own. And we always had somebody who was with us who cared for us. And this was one way to demonstrate care. I feel Foodways is very similar in a sense that the food is part of the care. It's the social relationships, but it's also the social coming together. Doraida Caloca, her friends call her Dory, took Dr. Alvarez's taco literacy class last spring. And the class got her thinking about the politics of food, her kind of food in particular, and the movement of her people that brought around the ever-adaptable and beloved taco from Mexico. Dori's family immigrated to Lexington from Tamaulipas in 1999, when she was six years old. I don't think it really hit me till later that we weren't going to go back. She started kindergarten and eventually went to high school and college here too. Before, like, the Latino population exploded since we've been here so long, um, it was always You were always the one that was different. In the taco literacy class, not only was she taking a look at her own past and connections to food, her classmates that weren't Latino were now looking at hers and starting to understand it too. And so it's just nice to have a set of students that were really interested in like my culture and like my choices and like why things happen the way they happened. And it like opened their mind that the Taco Bell taco isn't exactly the taco that I think of when I think of a taco. For the class, Dori interviewed her mom about her home cooking, and she realized that her mom's cooking is, beyond care and sustenance, a strategy to keep her kids close to Mexico. Araceli is Dori's mom. She cooks for her family of four every night. Mexican food, of course. In fact, she insists. Finding the ingredients she needed in Lexington has become easier over the years, as more businesses have popped up bringing in the chiles and the spices and the flavors she wants. I look for a particular seasoning to give it the right flavor, but it's not always the same as in Mexico, Araceli tells me. The tomatillo here, she says. It's a little sweet. It's not acidic like the flavor it has in Mexico. So the salsa doesn't quite have the same flavor. But you keep looking so you don't lose the context of what we're doing. And so our kids continue eating Mexican food. Tonight, Araceli is cooking beef tacos, carne asada, and frijoles charros, cowboy beans, made with bacon, ham, chorizo, onions, and garlic. She throws some chopped shaved steak in a pan for the tacos and then opens her cupboard to show me where she keeps all the good stuff. It's a two-tier Lazy Susan with old Quaker Oats containers she's covered in brown paper and relabeled canela molida, ground cinnamon, oregano. Chile ancho, bay leaf, and a variety of other spices used for mole and other meals she cooks for her family. All things she purchased at local Mexican grocery stores. Aguas calientes and others, right down the road from her house. She remembers when they first moved to Kentucky and her kids started wanting more American food. They became less interested in the Mexican food I was cooking, she says. But I never stopped cooking it. I don't know if it was the flavor or that all their friends were eating other food and they wanted to eat that because they didn't want to feel different, she tells me. Like her son Ignacio, who loved the frozen chicken patties. But I couldn't change, she says. 
because that would have been to leave my roots, my customs, and adapt to a new culture. We made a kind of combination of both foods back then. We would eat fast food on the weekends, but during the week it was my Mexican food at home. She pulls out the pan to cook the tortillas in her tortilla press and starts to mix the masa with a bag of corn flour, maseca. She adds a handful of all-purpose flour to it to keep it smooth. It makes the tortilla easier to handle. You can fold it in half and it doesn't rip, she tells me. A key quality for a good taco. But the tortilla is also crucial because when you can't afford a piece of meat, Araceli says, you can just eat tortillas. They don't cost much. You can eat tortillas with beans or tortillas with salsa, and that's your food, she says. This is why the tortilla is so important, so basic. Tortillas have been a working-class food, and this is probably why they've survived for so many generations and migrations of people. And just a few minutes later, hot tortillas and tacos carne asada on our plates. I would say a taco is, is not necessarily the tortilla or even the ingredients, but the bend. That's what makes a taco. Again, writer and taco historian Gustavo Arriano. A taco, I guess, is just, you know, a form and the act. And the act is to eat with one hand. Like, you're not going to eat a taco with a fork and knife because, well, no, that's not a taco at that point. And even after all this time, the taco we know today, this one that we eat folded in half with one hand, is around because of the tortilla. That was the one thing that was insoluble with the, you know, with Mexicans was our masa. Uh, you know, the United States could take half of Mexico. The Americans could basically make us uh, peons uh, and force us to move up north. NAFTA can destroy us, but at least we'll always have tortillas. We'll always have masa. But now even the concept of masa has been commercialized, with companies making a dehydrated form that is quick and easy to use. The most commonly known brand is Maseca. You don't have to cook and soak your corn with lime. You don't have to walk to the Molina. You don't have to worry about it spoiling. But the tortillas just don't taste the same, Arellano says. You talk to Mexicans now, they'll tell you flat out, tortillas don't taste the same as they used to. When I was growing up, or, you know, when they were growing up, and they'll say tortillas taste like cardboard now, and that's specifically because Maseca has overrun the tortilla market, the masa market and the corn market in Mexico, and all these uh, tortillerias or uh, molinos, the people who make the actual masa, a lot of them are getting their corn or getting their masa from uh, Maseca. But not at Taqueria Ramirez, where their Kentucky corn is holding up a very Mexican tradition. And that leads us to the final chapter. Chapter 3. El taco con sal, or la ranita, as Laura calls it. The salt taco. I should say that every single person I interviewed for this story talked about the salt taco, especially when they talked about tortillas from home. I first tasted one years ago in Guatemala. It's just what it sounds like. A simple tortilla, hot off the comal, sprinkled with salt. So after all this talk of tacos, I was ready for another one. I went back to Tacaria Ramirez, where the tortillas were coming hot off the press. We stand very close to the chugging machine, with tortillas rolling quickly off the belt. Laura counts, another stack of seven, and quickly, between stacks, we grab a couple to make the salt tacos. 
Little frogs, she calls them, ranitas. You put a little bit of water and a little bit of salt, and then you just squeeze it, and you make a ranita with them. And then eat it warm while it's warm. The ranita feels like an underdone cookie or a bit of hot bread in my mouth and melts there. While I eat it, she has shoveled hers in and is back to counting the next batch of tortillas without missing a step. That's how it used to be like when our parents used to make the homemade tortilla. That's what we used to eat it. Especially my grandma. My grandma used to make it, the, the tortillas like that by hand. And then she just put salt and of course they were poor, you know, they don't, they didn't have a, a lot of money, so they just, you know, tried to do it as fast as they could. It just, I don't know, it just tastes different, especially when they're homemade, you know, they taste different than, than the ones that you got to start and buy, you know, it's just, it's just different. Laura says sometimes people come into the shop and ask yeah. for a hot taco off the grill. She usually concedes, serving up one of her fresh Kentucky corn tortillas and sprinkling it with salt. It's a taste of two homes. You can see photos of Laura and Alberto Ramirez making these Mexican Kentucky tortillas and tacos at our website, southernfoodways.org. Thanks to Betty Abdmishani from the Village Branch of the Lexington Public Library and to the students from Dr. Steve Alvarez's taco literacy class. Music for this episode is by Luis Guerra. You can find him at luisguerramusic.com. Our theme music is by Wendell Patrick, and our donor music is by Jazar. Thanks to Gravy's managing editor, Sarah Camp Milam, and to our intern, Robin Miniter. Coming up, a taste of the next episode of Gravy. But first... If you're a fan of this podcast, you're also likely to enjoy SFA's sister publication, The Gravy Journal. Gravy treats readers to smart original writing four times a year, and the summer issue has just debuted. It features journalist and historian Cynthia Greenlee, who shares reflections on her father, and writer Wayne Curtis, who offers musings on cocktails and storytelling. To subscribe to the journal, visit southernfoodways.org and become an SFA member today. Becoming a member demonstrates your investment to our work, and we thank you. Coming up on the next episode of Gravy, when a white American family in Nashville adopts an 11-year-old Chinese girl, food culture divides prove a serious challenge. I feel like even though I'm going to be here 20 years, 30 or whatever, I don't feel like I'm going to adopt that American food at all, you know? I don't feel like I will change my mind at all. Even though I come here, I act like Americans, but I still want to have part of me as Chinese creating a new sort of bicultural family by cooking together in Tennessee. That's next time on Gravy. You're listening to Gravy. I'm John T. Edge for the Southern Foodways Lines. As you go about your day, please remember, make cornbread, not war. Mm-hmm.